Jordan. How's it going? Hey, Rob. What's up? Not much. Uh, I don't know if you've heard about this story. A little kind of obscure news story uh, from the last couple of days. Have you heard about this submarine? There's this submarine that was exploring <laughs> the wreckage of the Titanic, I guess. It's gone missing. And I've heard it's been it's a pretty remarkable thing. Have you, yeah. have you heard about this, this story? Yeah. What? what? <laughs> Once or twice, honestly. Yeah. Honestly, I know you're joking, but the thing is, what I've heard more is about the stepson of one of the passengers. I I had I've had to go out of my yeah, way. The Blink-182 to fan. Yeah. Yeah, I've had to go out of my way to find updates on the actual uh, sub- submersive. I think it's called. It's not actually. It's not a submarine. It's a submersive. I've had to go out of my way to find updates yeah. on that because everything is dominated by this freak of a stepson this guy has <laughs> yeah he's out there shooting a shot with like only fans models well, <laughs> like, honestly god god bless him my stepdad's in a in a sarcophagus at the bottom of the ocean yeah that's i think he also has some problematic troubling history of like death threats <laughs> or something to like wave DJs, djs or something like that like this is a really complicated yeah, figure. really complex guy yeah, yeah i did see that it know. was allegations and i think at least one arrest seriously yeah it's, there's a lot of twists and turns to this every story. every hour we get a new development in the the psychotic stepson saga uh this the only waking up to see he was just like tweeting yeah. at only fans <laughs> women just thought, thought that was a really great twist <laughs> after like three days of incessantly tweeting at members of blink 182 yeah. in the hopes he'd get to meet them because his stepdad yeah. is underwater get some backstage passes or something yeah yeah he was saying to his death stepdad where are you um <laughs> no but oh, seriously keep, folks no, keep going uh, keep going keep going <laughs> no it's it's just funny because it's like now it's been going on for enough that there's discourse around it now like you had a number of people that are just like these are all like rich they're incredibly rich people they're like there's like a billionaire businessman in there like fuck him i don't care and to me it's like you know it's a pretty horrible thing it's a pretty horrible way to go i think being trapped in a a metal coffin at the bottom of the ocean and not knowing whether you're going to live or die um, so I'm kind of trying to take this this dance where yeah I'm not gonna I'm not gonna do an end zone dance over this horrible ending for some of these people, including this 19 year old kid that's on there as well that I don't think is some like corrupt billionaire that is you know is, deserves to die the worst imaginable death that you can think of. Um, I will say though at the same time my sympathy does run a little low when you read about the stories of this like quote unquote yeah as you said it's not even a submarine it's a submersible and the amount of like corners that that were being cut in order to like you know overcome like safety standards and like ignoring basic warnings about like traveling to the ocean and i kind of feel like it's hard for me to be super sympathetic because if i feel like if i was going to show up to a thing like that some kind of adventure to go check out the titanic wreckage and i just saw this big metal box being piloted by like one of those 1990s Logitech controllers, I'd just kind of be like, you know what? Actually, I'm okay. I'm going to go ahead and <laughs> and not do this. Um, you don't. There's not even like a window. You're just looking at it through like a video screen. Like just look at a pic. Just look at a, watch a video on YouTube about the Titanic. It's fine. You don't need to do this. So I think it's a little bit, you know, not. It's not something that I would have done personally. So. As horrible as it is, I can't say that I'm feeling. I'm not going to scold people for for laughing at it or anything, or do that kind of that kind of discourse that we were seeing. My sympathy is a little yeah. low for for some of these folks. Yeah, I'm. It's 
uh, whatever. It's kind of like whatever. These are you know extremely wealthy people who paid two hundred and fifty thousand dollars a pop to go down there, who signed waivers which uh, reportedly included mentions of the possibility of death three times just on the first page. Had a a whistleblower who had left the company who had been warning about safety concerns with these uh, submersives and that company then tried to sue him for violating an NDA. I mean, it's just all around really, really problematic stuff. One guy who was supposed to be on that trip backed out at the last minute because of safety concerns. So it, it's just, it's yeah. really seedy all around. Obviously I think the, the kid didn't do anything wrong. He's just going with his dad. If he's born into that family, he, you don't get to pick your family, whatever. I'm just kind of like eh, on the whole thing, but this is the part that's just really yeah. got me enraptured is is the Blink One Eighty Two super fan stalker, the stepson. Uh, stepson, yeah. that's just a great development, a great saga. <laughs> Fighting with Cardi B today, it's a, it's a great wrinkle, yeah. And the CEO is on the the submarine as well. Yeah, that's got to be awkward, right? It's at the bottom of the ocean <laughs> in the dark, or whatever. He's like, oh, I'm sorry, yeah, I'm sorry about this. I was looking up earlier though the possibilities, <laughs> you know, it's the things that could have gone wrong. Everything from obviously this whole thing just crumpling under the pressure of the water, but also because of how they've built this thing, it only operates with two. Small Small fans. I was watching a video with like a some expert. Apparently, uh, I don't know what, exactly what his title was, but there's so much debris down there. I mean, you're at the site of a shipwreck, plus everything else floating in the ocean. God knows what what else you're going to see way way down in the ocean. The possibilities of something getting stuck in one of these two extremely small fans are pretty great. That would render your entire vehicle uh, immobile between that even just springing a small leak and knocking out the electricity and then we've seen these reports of banging or noises coming from the ocean there's no it do, it doesn't seem like from what i've seen that's guaranteed that that's them that could be a ton of different things uh, so even those seemingly optimistic reports may not be an indication that they are still alive you know, it, it could have just been crumbled or they could just be stuck down there. Yeah. And the whole thing is that they don't have navigation on the thing. They rely on like text messages with the ship above them. I mean, the whole thing just doesn't seem like a great use of anyone's time. Yeah. You know, I don't know. Uh, I personally would give that a miss. That doesn't really sound very interesting or fun to me to to risk this, such a horrific death in order to do this little adventure. Anyway, over 500 migrants drowned near Greece uh, a couple days ago as well. You know, I don't want to be scoldy or, or sanctimonious about it, but like it would be generally, I think, good if we devoted the same space in our media and our commentary and our discourse to talk about the hundreds of migrants and that are drowning each and every day or dying uh, rather than like this, like a breathless coverage of a couple billionaires that did this like incredibly objectively stupid thing and are now uh most likely dead as a result of it yeah it's it, that's my that's my one little sanctimonious uh ranty uh, uh thing that i'll get off there no i think that's uh i think it's fair to point that out i think people who are just going to keep hammering that point as if it makes them somehow above everyone else that's exhausting 
like the performative stuff that, that you <laughs> yeah. see elsewhere. It's like, all right, give me a fucking break. Yeah. Thank, thank you for making Believe this about me, you above, and how good yeah. you are. I'm but, right down in the muck. <laughs> but but yeah. I'm, not don't say, worry. I'm, I'm not saying I'm right you down are. in the muck with everybody. Don't, don't worry about that. I've accepted it. <laughs> It shows the class disparity in media coverage of these types of things. And to have an example juxtaposed just a week or two apart really shows just what the media, uh, their ultimate role is. It's to comfort uh, comfort the comfortable and afflict the afflicted when it really should be inverted. And it would be genuinely shocking, not just that the media would focus as or devote as much focus to a boat of refugees sinking or capsizing it wouldn't just be shocking if they covered it to the same extent it would be genuinely shocking if the same amount of people who are watching this titanic story also then paid that same amount of attention to a a boat of of refugees capsizing absolutely and and you know someone that does a lot of great work covering this kind of discrepancy in the media is uh, now returning guest. I think it's the third time he's been on the show. I think yeah. that qualifies him as friend of the show uh, Officially, status. yeah. David Sirota of The Lever. Yeah, official friend of the show, David Sirota. We got it. He's coming up uh, right after this. We really great conversation with him. Covered a lot of ground. I really, I really enjoyed talking to David. Always, It's always a pleasure to have him on the show. Yeah, it's wonderful. Uh, we have a little bit of NBA talk. We talked about the Nuggets because his team won the NBA championship, the NBA finals this year. We also got into a couple pieces the lever have the lever has done recently. One about potentially corporations in Delaware being able to vote. Another about how your bank is likely ripping you off with your deposits and a low interest rate on your deposits. And then we spend some time at the end talking about comments Obama recently made to David Axelrod about the concentration of wealth and the cynicism in the American people that created. It was interesting to hear Obama observe that just as a bystander. So really, really, really fun conversation with David. Before we get to that, though, (laughs) want to remind folks that our premium episode for paid interns went out on Tuesday. Manny Fidel, another returning guest, joined us to talk about a, a bunch of fun things. Everything from uh, Arnold movies to Spotify playlists uh, to uh, – oh, sorry. Everything from Spotify playlists to Arnold movies to the Saudis merger with the PGA Tour. And the, despite complaints and criticisms from the PGA Tour just a year prior about the Saudis' human rights violations, you can get that episode – and every other episode, every other bonus episode for just five bucks a month, your subscription helps keep the show going and you get an additional every you get an additional episode every week as a thank you. So we, we greatly appreciate your support Insurgentspod.com. It's just five bucks a month to subscribe. Yes, please subscribe. Become a paid intern to enjoy all that great bonus content. Another awesome conversation with Manny. And let's get to our talk with The Lever's David Sirota. He's going to be joining the program right after this. Well, David, you're, uh, you're probably riding pretty high. The Nuggets are NBA champs. You, you went to a finals game. What was that I like? I did. It was it was awesome. It was game one of the uh, the NBA Finals. I also went to game two of the Western Conference Finals. Um, 
which was actually I found to be a, actually a better game, uh, even though they were both great games. Um, but yes, it's this the Denver Nuggets have resurrected my childhood obsession with the with the NBA. Um, I really haven't been obsessed with the NBA since I was a I was a kid. Um, since the Charles Barkley on the Philadelphia 76ers years. In fact, I think you can see right here, right there, if you see that sneaker right yeah. there uh, behind yeah. me, that is a an autographed uh, Maurice Cheeks. Uh, oh, nice. Uh, <laughs> uh, one of his sneakers from a game. Um, Very cool. Basketball back there signed by Charles Barkley. So, yes, um, the Nuggets winning the, uh, the NBA championship for the first time in franchise history has been amazing. It's been amazing for the city. Uh, I have been accused uh, of being a um, just jumping on the bandwagon because I, <laughs> I grew up as a Sixers fan. Uh, however, uh, I have lived in Denver uh, almost as long as I lived in Philadelphia uh, at this point. Uh, and I, I've put it this way. The Nuggets are my favorite Western Conference team. And I feel like yeah, I can I stick with that. And, I think and if you live consistent. there, now my, that's totally fair. Yeah. Now, my totally friend, allowed. who's the governor of Pennsylvania, has been uh, razzing me uh, every now and again, <laughs> saying, I sound like a politician spinning my support for the local <laughs> team. Uh, he and I grew up together, Josh Shapiro and I, as major Sixers fans. And he was obviously upset when the, that the Sixers lost to the Celtics. I was upset this, that the Sixers lost to the Celtics, both because I remain a Sixers fan and also because uh, having grown up in Philadelphia, uh, I hate the Celtics. And actually, my children have now taken up hating the Celtics. Um, they're not okay. even sure why they hate the Celtics, <laughs> other than that you're not allowed to like the Celtics in our house. Hating the Celtics <laughs> is just something that unites all kinds of different NBA fans from different places. Places in different yeah, countries, absolutely. we can all get behind that. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Like, I mean, and by the way, I, I happen to see, um, uh, what's the guy's name on the, on the team? Uh, the Celtics, the really great guard uh, from Duke. Uh, I'm forgetting his name now. Jason now that Tatum. Lost. Um, yeah, Jason Tatum. Right a after a game that they played the Sixers, he was quoted as saying you know, humbly as one of the best players in the world. Uh, I, and, and he went on, I was like, I rewound it on the TV. I was like, wait a minute. Did he just say humbly? I am one of the best players in the world. Like, he, did he actually say that? I, I didn't know much about it. And then I was like, oh, of course he's, he's, he went to Duke. Of course, he's, yeah. he, you know, this is his vision of humility. Like, you know, good. I'm glad he lost. <laughs> I kind of yeah. like him. I have a soft spot for him and Jalen Brown. I've hated other I've, I've hated other Celtics teams more than I hate this current team. What really makes yeah. them awful is just their obnoxious fan base. That's just Boston sports yeah. in general. Like the players, hate the Celtics. Simple as. I would also say that like humbly, I'm one of the best players in the world is not a phrase you'd hear out of somebody like Jokic. Right, you'd never right. hear yeah. that from him. He, I, I mean, I am so obsessed with Jokic, not just as a basketball. He's player. very entertaining I mean, as, he's just an, as a person. Like, yeah, unbelievable basketball player. But he, they're, they're, he's like a, he's in like a on a different plane. Like he's he's like like uh, he's like got a Buddha like sort of Yoda ish like way he talks about like the the world and his outlook it's I, at one point he said after the finals he's like yeah it's, it's basically he said it's basically it's just a job i'm looking forward to getting home and like like you know training horses and some people were like oh how could he say that like he just won the nba but he's like dude it's just it's it's my job like this is a job i have other things that are he said there are other things in my life that are also important and my job is cool and i and it's like yeah, that that's actually how you should look at life like that's beautiful that's a beautiful thing. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. 
And it was just absolutely incredible to watch yeah. his run in the playoffs. And like this thing, I I absolutely jumped on the on the Nuggets uh, bandwagon. I am a Raptors guy who had a very disappointing season. They weren't even the Western Conference yeah. team that I initially gravitated to the Kings because they had the kind of underdog thing. But I, it was interesting because the Nuggets have just been so bad or or were even worse mediocre for so long that even though they were such a highly ranked team with like the best player in the world, they still kind of felt like an underdog story. So I felt okay still hopping over well, to the, I think, to the honestly, Nuggets bandwagon in the end there. I think that's be maybe they didn't. It, it, well, they feel like an, they felt like an underdog because one, they the franchise had never won an uh, NBA Finals. Uh, they had this sort of history of of once in a while doing really well and then sort of choking at the end. But I also think that um, the Nuggets play as as the kind of team that you you don't often see anymore, which is like a team that's like a real team. One of the stats that I really love about the Nuggets was that um, they went in the playoffs, I think it was 0-3 when Jokic scored more than 40 points, which which actually says something about the team, that that the winning ways of the Nuggets, the, the winning formula is not where one dude is like the, the, the centerpiece uh, and the sort of the old Michael Jordan way, you know, J- Jordan's going to get triple teamed and, and Jordan ended up being a decent team player, obviously, but, but the still like, like it, it wasn't exactly it, a lot of those bulls teams weren't exactly fully functioning teams. Like the nuggets play like the old Celtics played like the old Celtics, like the Celtics that I hated growing up, but you know, the old Celtics of bird and Parrish and Dennis Johnson and Danny Ainge, like the, that was and Mikhail, like that was a team, a functioning team. And the Nuggets, I feel like, are a functioning team like that, which is different from what the NBA has become. The NBA has become this sort of, you know, one on five sort of, you know, superstar savior model in recent years. It's kind of basketball that I, I hate. I don't like watching it. And by the way, it's the kind of basketball that when you're growing up as a kid, your coaches tell you never to play. Right. Like, yeah. I was always on teams and I always wanted to be a good player, but I, you know, junior varsity or, you know, community league teams where the coach was like, you're not allowed to shoot unless unless the team has passed three times, at least three times. Right. Like those are all the teams I work on. If you shot before that, you get like pulled and put on the bench. Like I feel like the NBA has become that has become like <laughs> just, you know, you shoot immediately. Uh, there's no passing. So the Nuggets like I feel like not to take it not to like extrapolate too much. But I feel like the the zeitgeist of the team is like a throwback to a kind of a, a form of basketball that's a team game and a kind of uh, ethos that that we have we don't have in America very much anymore, right? America, so many different things are like the individual savior, like don't play is it no solidarity? It's like one person who's the great you know the sort of great man of, of history theory of the way politics and business work. But the the Nuggets were like a team that operates as a team. It was it's kind of like refreshing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, they have such a deep roster too, which is really fun to watch. The uh, the the dynamic now for the Nuggets that you wrote about, and I'd love to get your thoughts on, and specifically how it informs our understanding of work and our role in a in a workplace. You wrote about Bruce Brown, who is this electric guard, uh, comes off the bench for the Nuggets, but just brings this jolt of energy to the court, and he had a, a phenomenal postseason. Great player. He could remain with the Nuggets, potentially taking a pay cut. He indicated initially he wants to. 
But now he, he looks like he's going to test the free agency market. And you wrote about how, as a fan, you'd obviously love to see him remain with the Nuggets because he's such a vital part of that roster. But also, you're recognizing that, hey, maybe it is best for him for him to do this for himself. Could you talk about this, uh, di- this d- dilemma so many athletes find themselves in at the end of a season and, and what you wrote about, about how it relates to work and our understanding of work? Yeah, I mean, so so Bruce Brown is one of my favorite players because he is this consummate uh, team player, off the bench guy. Not the, he's like one level below superstar, right? He's not the superstar, but he's certainly, I mean, the I, crucial uh, to the Nuggets. And there, and I feel like there aren't that many of those players anymore. Uh, in, in I mean, they, they exist, but that used to be a thing when I was growing up. And I, I likened him to for folks who follow the NBA, you know, Vinnie Johnson was the ultimate uh, off the bench. They called him the microwave. He'd come in and heat, you know, heat up. He was amazing. Um, and so Bruce Brown has a one-year contract with the Nuggets. Uh, and for for various salary cap reasons and the like, if he re-options the contract uh, uh, or he goes on the free agent market, he doesn't option the contract, he goes out on the free agent market, the Nuggets can't, probably can't pay him what the kind of salary that he could command from other teams that will will now want him because he did so well in the playoffs and he's clearly showed off his skills and the like and yes as a fan I want Bruce Brown to stay like my kids and I bonded over like every time Bruce Brown like dunked or got an offensive rebound it's like high-fiving you know it's like Bruce he's just right because it's just he's just a great kind of team player um but after I was like, when I read the news in the Denver Post that he, he right after the finals, he said, I, I money isn't everything. I, I really want to stay. I was like, that's great. And I was like all psyched about it. And then I was like, wait a minute, I don't want to root for this guy to not do what's best for him economically, because I know that we live in a country that has very, very little social safety net. Uh, we are all, unless you're really a, like a hundred millionaire, a billionaire, we are all like one car accident, one sickness, uh, one bad turn in life away from potential economic turmoil, right? And so we live in a country where you, if you get economic opportunity, uh, oftentimes it is very fleeting. And in particular for, for athletes, pro athletes, it's, it can be very fleeting. I mean, you are yeah. as a pro athlete, and you really think about this, you are like one bad step off a curb where you tear your ACL or snap some something in your ankle or whatever, you're one injury away from losing your ability to make uh, a good living potentially. Yeah. Even pro athletes that manage to stay healthy as well. Like even if you're extremely lucky, you have maybe 10, 12 years to operate at that kind of level. Maybe if you're the, like the absolute pinnacle and you're extremely lucky after that, you have to, that's the only time that you're earning that kind of money in your whole career. Right. And you've you've trained for that. I mean, it's it's one thing to be like a doctor who goes through, you know, 10, 15, 20 years of training to become a doctor. And then you and then, you know, presumably you're not just step off a, off a curb and you can't be a doctor anymore. Right. Like being an athlete require typically pro athlete requires a similar amount of training, but that can go away kind of instantly. Uh, so it's a huge it's a huge risk. Uh, and and again, you only have a small window. You're right to like actually 
make economics out of that, make a financial reward out of that. So my point is, is that while as a fan, I want Bruce Brown to stay, I also want people like Bruce Brown to, if the window is open for financial opportunity, to take it, uh, to, to, to maximize it. Right, because nobody else is looking out for that guy. Our society, and this really is, a, you know, as I said, Bruce Brown's dilemma is the American economy, right? Like his dilemma: I want to stay in Denver because I like the team, but I'll, I because of the salary cap and the like, I may have to take less money. His dilemma between that choice and I'm just going to go out to any team that's going to pay me the the most amount of money. That dilemma there is a kind of large example of choices that I think lots of people who are listening to this make every every day or every you know every so often in their lives where they may be they may want a job and they may be qualified for a job uh, or they may want to stay in a job uh, that uh, that they really want to do it's a good work situation for them uh, but they have to make economic choices to take other jobs that they may not want to do as much or situations they may not want to be in as much because it pays more, the next job pays more in a in a world where in a country where you have to you're, you're potentially one step away from medical bankruptcy, foreclosure, uh, educational debt bankruptcy, and the like. Like, I mean, I think about it sometimes. A better example, or as good an example, is people who come out of law school. Right, you come out of law school, you got a whole a huge amount of debt, and you may want to go into public interest law, but the corporate law firm over here is offering you way more money to pay off your student debt. So you can choose the harder path, but it's a much, much harder path in a country that forces you to take on that debt, in a country that forces you uh, to know that you're one step away from medical bankruptcy, even if you have health insurance and the like. So I think like Bruce Brown's dilemma, like I'm not feeling bad for him. It's easier to navigate when you're deciding between different, you know, different levels of multi-million dollar salaries. I, I get that. So, you, you know, the guy's not a victim or anything, but I'm saying, I think like to think about it, to think about that situation as kind of a, 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 a perfect example of the kinds of things that the American economy uh, does to people's job and work decisions. Yeah. And it's always a little weird when we, yeah, (laughs) it's always a little weird when we put the onus on players, just like, just take less money. Why not? Just want to just take less money to stay there. But we never really ask the same thing of the owners of the franchises, you know? Um, Like there's always, whenever there's a a work stoppage in the NBA or any other sport as well, it's like, why don't these players just like, they're, they're so lucky, you know? I can't stand that when whenever there's like a, the NFL strike or the NBA yeah. or the baseball stuff, you know, or and, and as another example, the Hollywood uh, writer strike. Oh, you know, these people, uh, why are yeah. the writers greedy? Why are the athletes greedy? It's like, wait a minute. Wait, wait, wait. OK, <laughs> you can be upset that in our society, Hollywood makes so much money or the NBA makes billions of dollars. You can kind of have a global uh, uh, quarrel with the idea that that. Why does our society spend this much money on the NBA and professional basketball? That's I I'm there. I hear I hear that bread and circuses. I get get, get that analysis. Totally get it. But at the same time, knowing that we spend that much money on you know entertaining ourselves with professional sports and the like, then the question becomes: Well, okay, well, well, who should get the biggest share of those resources? Right? Like, because it's going to go to somebody, right? So it's like, oh, I don't want the athletes to get paid that well. Well, it's like. Well, okay. So you want the owners to, to have more of them? Like <laughs> yeah. the owners don't even do anything, right? They're, no. they're just, they, they're just, they do nothing, right? So the, the, the stadiums are often publicly funded. 
Right. So the question is not like, oh, does does you know does Jokic or or Bruce Brown or anyone else deserve millions of dollars? The question is like, okay, there's a pot of money that goes to the Denver Nuggets. Should the billionaire owner get most of the pot, or should the players who actually create the value get most of that? Right. Like it's the it's always the same question between labor and capital. Labor creates the value. Capital owns the the assets, owns the value. So when labor demands more of the uh, of the value, more of the resources, it's simply demanding a bigger share of the value it's creating. Right. Yeah. So I, I think it's like, you know, oh, the players get paid too much. It's like, no, the players, to my mind, there there are there is no value to the to the Denver Nuggets if their players are if if there's no Jokic or, or Bruce Brown or Jamal Murray or, or any right like they deserve most of the money <laughs> they're creating yeah. the, the the value they're generating billions of dollars in revenue for the NBA and for the owners um, with the big TV deals yes like um, I I didn't run out and buy a Stan Kroenke shirt. The owner of the of the Nuggets <laughs> after the, the Nuggets first, won the, the finals. <laughs> yeah, it, right. I know. I hate that. I, yeah. I hate that. I can't stand you, that. You contributed nothing to I this. I know. I know. I can't stand that. Yeah, I went out and I bought a Jokic jersey, and my son got me to get him a, a Jamal Murray jersey. I, my yeah. my daughter, by the way, wants an Aaron Gordon t shirt. I'm trying to find it. There aren't that many of them out there. He's 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 fun. Aaron Gordon is so fun to watch. Uh, my kid, my though, kids accuse me of being a hater of Aaron Gordon. <laughs> really? I'll tell you why. Yeah, and I, I actually love Aaron Gordon. Aaron Gordon, by the way, reminds me so much of Charles Barkley, the way he plays. Like, he really is kind of – there's something Barkley-ish about him. Uh, yeah. And it's like – because I've only recently come back to the NBA from being a fan in the in the late 90s, early 2000s, I'm still not used to, like, the, the amount of three-point shooting. Yeah. And so I'm like, That's Aaron Gordon, change. why are you shooting three-pointers? Like, <laughs> stop shooting three. You're like a big forward. Like, what are you doing? And actually, he made a, He actually shot pretty well. He hit a couple big ones. But yeah. I'm like, bro, you're so much better being on the inside. Why are you shooting threes? Like, and my kids are like, dad, you hate Aaron Gordon. I'm like, no, I just don't want him shooting threes. Like, I want him in there losing in the paint. Yeah. That's, that's exactly. the funniest thing about Jokic, though, because he's so wonky and just kind of like ambles down the court and then he'll take he'll go up for a three and it'll look like the ugliest shot you have ever oh seen in your life and then it's just perfect and i <laughs> i'm there's this yeah. cognitive dissonance as i watch him play i just can't believe he it just consistently hits him at our local bar that we've been watching all the all, we watch all the playoff games at like Here's how, like, I, I the people started laughing at me because, like, you know, we go back there and it would be, be this. Every time Jokic would shoot a three, I they, you'd hear, no, no, what are you doing? No, 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 no. Yes, yes. <laughs> yeah. You know, like, like dude, why just drains like, it. it? It drains it, totally. There were some great oh, moments man. in that L.A. series when he would make one of those step-back circus three-point shots and, like, Anthony Davis and LeBron would kind of just be like, well, all right. Like, <laughs> there's really nothing no, to listen, do about that. Listen, I, I mean <laughs> – when the Lakers really beat funny. the beat the Nuggets in that one in in that one game, it was because um, uh, Anthony Davis was making. I think he hit a couple threes, and I was like, "Listen, if Anthony fucking Davis is making three pointers, right? Like they're big forward. Like if you're gonna lose, like like 
that that's how you're going to lose, right? Like if, if somebody's like that is just going to is going to be that on fire. I mean, it was like the game two we went to the Western Conference Finals, like the game two when Jamal, Jamal Murray, Murray like Jamal nuts. Murray in the fourth quarter went just like lost his mind and went insane. It was like I'm sure the Lakers walked away and they weren't happy about it. But it's like, listen, if a guy becomes like you know an NBA Jam on fire character from a video <laughs> game, like like we're just going to lose. Like there's nothing we can do. <laughs> Uh, well, I would well, love to talk about the NBA for this entire podcast. We probably should pivot to like talking yeah, about news and say. politics and stuff eventually. <laughs> I should have worn my uh, uh, one last thing. I should have worn my. I don't, I'm not wearing it now, but uh, I did get my um, my Jokic Murray tw- uh, 24 campaign T-shirt. It's amazing. Oh, it's love like, that! It's, it, it, it's, it's it's incredible. It's like a campaign <laughs> nice. T-shirt. Yeah, and I I actually w- was out at a like street fair in Denver uh, in the middle of the finals. Like it was like you know they hadn't won yet, and like. Every tenth person was like, "Dude, great shirt, great T-shirt, great T-shirt." It was my my kids were so impressed; they thought it was awesome. <laughs> That's great. It's like the perfect hybrid of of your interests. Yes, uh, yes. A ticket we can so believe good. in. A ticket we can finally believe in. <laughs> uh, I'm on board. I'll donate. Uh, if if West drops out, then I, I guess I'm going. I'm going Jokic. There you uh, go. There you go. Uh, so you guys have been putting out some amazing work at the Lever. Still, not just over the past week. You guys always do. Uh, there are a couple pieces we wanted uh, to talk to you about before we get into uh, Obama's recent comments when when talking to David Axelrod uh, about cynicism and the concentration of wealth, and also which uh, I watched last night Obama's working documentary. Before we get to that, I, 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 we really want to ask you about a couple pieces the levers put out. So this, this one that just came out yesterday, I think would make anybody's hair stand on end one of the most pro-corporate states in the country delaware is considering uh uh, (laughs) letting corporations vote it seems like just kind of a lazy parody almost uh a lazy parody of republicans what's what's happening in delaware are corporations going to be able to vote so I shared this story with some friends, and uh, one of my friends, Adam McKay, uh, he he texted back to me. He was like, "Is this a real story or is this the Onion?" Like, <laughs> he couldn't believe it. Yeah, right. Like, court, like that just doesn't sound. That doesn't even sound real. And and it actually is real. Um, and to be clear, it's not at a statewide level, but in in a lot of these uh, East Coast states, the state legislature has to kind of approve what municipalities do, and so. Essentially, what happens is, is that in this town of Seaford, Delaware, um, this this state the the town is asking uh, the state legislature uh, to uh, let it allow um, to let it allow LLCs to vote uh, in elections. Uh, LLCs, limited liability corporations, uh, which so so the, so the Republicans uh, in the legislature in Delaware in the minority they put a bill together to allow this to happen. And the Democrats have advanced it. Now, they pulled it back at the last minute uh, earlier this week. So it's not (laughs) clear whether this bill is going to pass. But obviously, the precedent of allowing LLCs to vote in any municipal election, I mean, that is that's that is really, you know, through the looking glass. Um, I think it would create a real precedent. Now, now, just to be clear, uh, corporations in some Delaware uh, uh, towns uh, have been allowed to vote in like referenda 
uh, you know, ballot initiatives and the like, uh, which are, which to my mind is also insane. But this would actually let corporations vote in like city council elections. Again, it's it's not a huge town, uh, but the precedent is what is at issue here. And as as you can see in our story at levernews.com, um, it follows uh, only two years ago, um, Nevada considered legislation from its then Democratic governor at the time to allow corporations to create their own municipal governments. Uh, now, just get your head around that, right? Like the, a, a corporation could buy a parcel of land and then apply with the state uh, to be allowed to say that it is the government, the, yeah. the local government of that area. Now, Florida actually kind of has that already. With Disney. With yeah. Disney. Yeah. Right. Like Dis- Disney is basically its own government uh, in the land that it owns um, in and around the, the, the Disney theme park. Uh, all of this, uh, to my mind, should be super disturbing. Right. Like this is this sounds like something out of a Paul Verhoeven movie. It sounds like something out of like RoboCop or something. <laughs> but but this is real. Uh, now, now, the Nevada bill did not pass. Uh, the Delaware bill is still sitting there. It's not clear what, what's going to happen there. And, and it's worth mentioning one other piece of context here is that Nevada and Delaware have been sort of competing with each other to be the most uh, pro-corporate, pro-friendly, uh, corp- pro-corporate friendly state in America. Uh, and, and this is where it, it, it's going, right? Like who can give corporations, which state can attract business by giving corporations more and more power over everything? The Florida Disney thing is funny as well because you've seen Ron DeSantis like try and claw back some power from mm-hmm. Disney, but not for any actual good, decent, altruistic reasons, but because they're woke and Marxist and have like people of color and non-binary people in their films, like not because it's actually super evil and dystopian and disturbing the fact that they have this kind of power and ability. <laughs> I mean, that's t- to my mind that it's like one of the most dis- like like depressing parts of politics that like. Ron DeSantis criticizing Disney's sort of sovereignty, like it, it, as a sovereign entity, is accurate on that level. Like there shouldn't be corporate sovereign entities, like you know, that have their own governments. But of course, it's motivated by something hideously bad and wrong. Like <laughs> Disney can't have corporate sovereignty because it's too woke. It's like, dude, you were like half right. Like. Disney shouldn't have corporate sovereignty, period, like as a principle. But the only reason you're mad about it is because Disney is supposedly too woke. Like, like that's where our politics are. Like, like, and then the worst part was, is that the Democrats were like defending Disney. They're like, yeah. no, Disney, Disney's okay. It's okay that they're like, they have their own, <laughs> you know, government. Like that, like this is an attack on Disney's government. It's like, wait a minute. Okay. Wait, now you're defending like a corporate government yeah. because it's, 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 you know, it, it has divert, like, no, like this, how did our politics become this messed up? Yeah. God. Well, I we think in terms of Disney's the story military, that- we need to, we need to yeah, rush exactly. billions in aid. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. I think in terms of this so, Delaware so story, dark. I think you might as well just. You know, you already have corporations that have like the same free speech rights as uh, human beings and citizens. They're already able to like legally bribe politicians. Why don't you just skip the middleman and just give them the right to vote? And then you can just formalize the whole process rather than having this kind of degree of separation between the corporations. If I just, you know, let's put all the cards on the table. (laughs) 
No, I mean, I think that's obviously that's where they want it. You know, that's where, frankly, what's where I mean, where American politics is going. And and as our story started, look, the, the lead of the story notes Joe Biden has called his home, his words, the corporate state of Delaware. Republican Mitt Romney has insisted that corporations are people. So in a sense, this is embodying the bipartisan spirit. Dem- Delaware Democrats yeah. advancing a Republican bill that would allow corporations as people to directly vote in municipal elections. Like, like there is a consistency to it, right? Like a, a hor- horrible, repulsive consistency that if you think corporations are people and you're cool with that, like, I, I guess this is okay. I mean, it's not okay to me, but like, <laughs> yeah. I, I guess that's the theory. There's a sick logic to it. Also, you also point out, I mean, the danger, if, if this were to happen, there's in the most recent election, just 340 people voted. Mm-hmm. There are 234 potentially votes that would be added through this legislation. I mean, that would basically allow if the business community there operated mostly in unison to dictate the laws for this municipality, which means they yes. could just rewrite anything they wanted in their favor. Yes, yes, exactly. And and, and that's... That's what they want. That's that's why this this should be scary to anybody. I mean, it's 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 a it's definitely super creepy. And I think if it happens, it other places will take a look at it and say, "Listen, they did it. Why can't we do it?" And I'm sure you know, uh, big companies like Amazon are looking with this uh, with a lot of interest as well, because you know they would love to have that kind of power over certain municipalities or to i know bezos and amazon have talked about for opening sure. up like company towns as well where their workers can live i'm sure they'd like nothing more than to have their own little company towns where they could just pay their employees in amazon script um and just have their own little fiefdoms there you know and so i'm, I'm sure that there's many big corporations that are looking at that with a lot of interest totally 100 percent. even if it doesn't pass like i think you're you're both right it's going to be going to be looked at elsewhere. So this is something that listeners need to pay attention to uh, and hopefully push back on My, my guess is that we'll, we'll, we'll see it as like there'll be a, an ALEC version of this, the American Legislative Exchange Council, the uh, Republican group that coordinates uh, state legislative efforts, that, that they won't – that the Republican bill or the ALEC bill will be something like – it won't be – sort of as as brazen as just corporations can vote it will be something along the lines of like a preemption thing like cities can allow llcs to vote right municipalities counties etc cetera, etc cetera, right you'll see that in state that'd be my bet in state legislatures you'll see republicans introduce bills that would under the guise of local control they will say you know municipalities counties can allow llcs uh, and other kinds of corporate entities to vote. That that's oh. that's my that's it's kind of an evil genius the way that yeah works because people don't pay attention and they're not or for the most part and they're not engaged at the local level to to fight back against it, which would effectively Absolutely. give a lot of these business owners just two votes. You'd, it's ridiculous. Right. Yeah. Uh, another piece that you have that's really great is about uh, people's interest rates on their deposits. It's called the Great. The Great Bank Robbery of 2023. And we're in a time where we see a lot of headlines about interest rates. To many people, it's abstract. It might not affect them. But you articulate 
and explain how this is affecting you because the banks are making billions collectively off of everyone's deposits and not sharing on those high interest rates. What exactly are they doing and how are they skimming all of this money off of people's deposits? Yeah, this is one of the largest upward transfers of wealth uh, that's happening in America uh, right now that I, I think is kind of happening in a in an office space Superman 3 kind of way where it's like happening in like it seems like each transaction is at the margins, like, you know, quarter of a penny is half a penny's here or there, right? But if you do that, that's the, you know, for those who don't know the office space in Superman 3, that was the whole, you know, the, the hilarious crime they pull off. You know, they're stealing fractions of a penny. But if you steal fractions of a penny over like billions of transactions, fractions of pennies end up being a lot of money. So here's what's going on. When you deposit money at a bank, uh, the bank uh, is supposed to pay you some interest. Now, I think for a, lo a long time, people got used to banks paying no interest because we were living in a zero interest rate environment, a uh, very low interest rate environment. But what's supposed to happen is the bank is supposed to pay you some interest. Uh, it's paying you for the privilege of taking your money and earning potentially more than the interest it's paying you, but it's supposed to pay you some interest. What's going on right now is that banks are paying on average, according to the FDIC, 0.4% of interest APY on a savings account. Okay. So you do the math, put in a thousand dollars, you're going to get 0.4, you're going to get 0.4% at the end of a year. You'll have 0.4%, you know, what's that? $1,040. Banks are paying only 0.4% while they can then take your deposit and park it at the Federal Reserve Bank and earn 5%. Okay. Now, before we get into why this is important, let's just remember the gap between what they're paying you as a saver and what they can get by depositing their, your money on behalf, you know, they can take your money and deposit it at the Fed and getting 5%. That gap has always existed. That's a, the business of a bank, right? I mean, like, and, and to be clear, I, there's always going to be some gap because you are paying for the bank's, you know, the, the, the gap it pays for the bank's services, the gap pays for the fact that you can take your money out as it's all liquid, right? I mean, the risk that, you know, the all the basic bank functions plus some kind of profit for the bank, right? Because it is a business. Okay. Now here's the punchline. The gap between what banks are, are now on average paying and what they can make when they take those deposits and park it at the Fed, that gap is now at an historic high. It's the largest gap that's ever been. The banks are not passing on a, a fair share of the interest rate hikes that the Fed is enacting. Right. So that when the Fed raises the interest rates that it pays banks, that ends up raising the interest rates that banks charge you to borrow money. But when they raise interest rates uh, that, that they pay to the banks and they, which ends up raising interest rates that you pay when you borrow money, one benefit is supposed to be, well, at least you're going to get some more interest when you save money. But that's not happening at the rate that it's typically happened in the past. This is, it's called, the technical term for this is deposit beta. The difference between what they're paying savers and, and what banks pay savers and what banks can uh, can get when they deposit money at the Fed. So this is an enormous ripoff. And it's exacerbated by the fact that lots of people are incentivized to have their money in the big five banks, right? Like, and why? Because the, the the big five, really the big 10, uh, uh, the reason to have your money there, and I'm not telling you, I'm not recommending that, but the incentive is, is that the two big to fail banks 
have an implicit government guarantee that if shit hits the fan, your deposits will be there, right? It's like even it's like a belt and suspenders even beyond the FDIC. So there was a stat in the Wall Street Journal that puts this all in perspective. Actually, let me give you a couple of of, of stats. So here's a here's good ways to understand this. The FDIC, as I said, reported that banks are on the whole paying 0.4% interest rate to depositors on average. At the same time, banks get paid on average right now more than 7% when they are using those deposits to make a 30-year fixed rate mortgage. They're also being paid, as I said, more than 5% of interest when they just take your deposit and put it at the Fed. And let's remember, you are not allowed to put your money at the Fed. Right? Like you can't just walk into the Fed and put your money and get five. You're not allowed to do that. Now let's look at the too big to fail banks. The Wall Street Journal estimated estimates that since 2019, depositors at those banks have missed out on more than $290 billion worth of interest that they might have earned at better interest rates at other banks or in different financial vehicles. Jack Reed, the senator from Rhode Island on the banking committee, noted in one recent letter that a new Bank of America customer will will receive about 0.01% of interest on a regular savings account, but pay 6.9% on a mortgage and 15 to 27% on a credit card from the same bank. So, So big shocker, bank profits are absolutely skyrocketing right now because of the interest rate hikes. The, 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 the technical term for that is it's called net interest income. The amount of money, of, of revenue that banks receive on that gap has just absolutely skyrocketed. Uh, and, and, and the thing is, let's remember, the, the too big to fail banks control most of the depositors or the deposits in this country. So yeah, so, so what's the upshot of this? The upshot is one, if you're listening to this right now, if you can hear my voice, check your interest rate that you're being paid at, at your bank on your savings or your checking, and then try to shop it around because there are there is competition out there. I mean, there, there are smaller banks, and if you're depositing under $250,000, it's FDIC insured. Like, don't just get you know fleeced by 0% interest. If you're getting, fle- if you're getting 0 or 0.1, 0. 0.2, 0.3, 0.4% interest, you're, you're being fleeced. There are better interest rates out there. And, and the, the, the other thing to say here is, is that, look, policymakers could fix this. There are proposals out there to just let people do their banking directly at the Fed. Like, why does the Fed only allow other banks to deposit money? Why can't I walk into the Fed, get myself a savings account at 5%, just like my, private, my, my bank has, has a, an account at the Fed and is getting 5%. Well, that sounds like socialism to me. So that's dangerous stuff that you're getting into there. When the state is dealing with it, you got you to maintain that degree of separation between the state and allowing these private actors to step in and reap huge profits off or offering these services rather than the state just doing it uh, themselves. I mean, it's interesting. You mentioned you talk about the rise in the interest rates as well. Like the, those, the you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but like the whole idea of raising the interest rates in the first place was supposed to be a way to combat inflation. And it's just interesting how like these- right these uh, actions that they're taking in order to deal with inflation don't seem to be having any actual effect on the inflation, but it's increasing the profit margins of these massive uh, corporate banks. So, you know, mission accomplished. Well, I mean, that's I a whole, that's a separate issue and an, and an important issue, which is that, which is that 
what's the point of the interest rate hikes and and uh, or is it a misdirected uh, tool and the obvious now answer is, is that interest rate hikes are not the way to combat the kind of inflation that we're experiencing for a long time the argument had been that uh, inflation was because workers were making too much money uh the government was spending too much money to give people subsistence aid right i mean that was the argument for you know 2020 2021 etc yeah uh, and that argument was has been proven false the the reason we, we data set after data set after data set shows that the pri the primary driver or at least one of the big drivers of inflation is the fact that corporations have been allowed to become oligopolies uh corporations have been able to gain market share where under the guise of supply chain issues and the like, although there are supply chain issues to be clear, but under the excuse of supply chains, corporations can just jack up prices and there aren't competitors. There are fewer competitors, competitor corporations uh, to undercut them on price. Like if you have a competitive industry, if if one company jacks up its price, uh, then another company, the will if it's competitive another company will undercut that price for the same product but in so many industries after you know 20 30 40 years of anti lax antitrust enforcement so many industries are now oligopolies controlled by two three four companies where they can just jack up their prices and know that they're not going to face price competition that's what's really driving inflation as as the data has shown uh and so interest rate hikes as a tool for that kind of inflation, it's 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 it, it doesn't work. It, it it's not diagnosing the problem, right? I mean, it's 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 not yeah. what is necessary. What what is necessary are you know is antitrust enforcement, uh, anti collusion enforcement. Um, some have argued you know some versions of price controls, uh, uh, you know better regulation and the like, right? Like. That's what's necessary, but that, of course, is not what corporate America wants or wants to talk about. Yeah, and Jerome Powell has admitted and acknowledged in speeches that part of this, and a lot of Wall Street people have supported it. Part of these interest rate interest rate hikes is to get wages down and to increase unemployment a bit because they think that'll cool off the labor market. Now, for you know the the next FDR uh, Biden. When your Fed chair is doing that, I mean, they're supposed to be separate, but as the past few administrations and past couple of decades have shown, they're really not. What can a president and an administration do in response to your Fed chair and other uh, financiers and technocrats talking about this ultimately being the goal? What could they do in response? Well, for one thing, they could not, you know, cut off the American rescue plan. They could actually not buy into the austerity argument. Oh, you know, inflation's caused because, you know, but by us, uh, the American government uh, enacting an expanded child tax credit, right? Like they can, they can pass uh, uh, fiscal policies that actually help people and don't internalize and accept the austerity argument. So that's one thing. Uh, I, I certainly think uh, the other thing a president can do is fire the Fed chair. Now I know some people would say, "Oh, that's crazy!" How you know? First of all, that it's in the it's in the law. The president can do that, and I I absolutely think that in the specific case of Jerome Powell and Biden, there's a very good argument that Jerome Powell should be fired uh, way beyond uh, like a policy disagreement. 
right? Like uh, the, the law says a Fed chair could be fired for cause. If you look at the Silicon Valley Bank situation, just forget about the you know interest rate. Dis- that's a policy. Dis- Jerome Powell and the Fed are the chief regulators of this country's banking industry, uh, and they 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 insisted under Jerome Powell, Jerome Powell's Fed uh, asserted what was it a year and a half, two years before the Silicon Valley Bank collapse, that Silicon Valley Bank posed no systemic threat uh, to uh, the economy in the event of a collapse, et cetera, et cetera. And then when the bank collapsed, uh, the Fed reversed itself and said it does pose a, a systemic risk. Therefore, we have to basically bail out all the all the depositors. Point being that it's not like Joe Biden has to manufacture some reason to get rid of Jerome Powell. Like Jerome Powell, just on banking regulation, has has there's plenty of cause to replace. I mean, if if you were the chief banking regulator of America. And you said, you know, 20 months before Silicon Valley's collapse, hey, Silicon Valley Bank is great. It's safe. Even if it does collapse, it's not a big risk. And then it does collapse. And then you say it is a big risk. To my mind, that's an open and shut case of cause. Of course, Joe Biden will would never fire Jerome Powell. Like, it's just, it's like, it violates his entire, the, the thing he most centrally worships. Okay, what does Joe Biden most centrally worship? He most intensely worships norms. Right. No president has ever, I think, maybe not, not, maybe there's been one other example, like way back, but it's not, you know, normal to fire a Fed chair. It's not even considered normal to, for a president to criticize a Fed chair, although Donald Trump did that, that, but he's not considered normal. And I'm not, you know, I'm not like, you know, attaboying Donald Trump, like Donald Trump's terrible. But the point is, is that Joe Biden, Mr. Norms would never fire much less openly criticize the Fed chair. So we're stuck now with a Fed chairman uh, who is doing uh, these interest rate hikes that are horrific in so many ways, and Biden buying the argument, and the Democrats buying the argument. Now, granted, the Republicans pushing it too, uh, but but compromising with, or at least negotiating with the argument that the real problem is uh, there's too much government spending on things like Medicaid and food stamps and, uh, you know, the child tax credit. A, a nonsensical bullshit argument, an argument that has now now defines policy to the immiseration of millions of people. I mean, there's just something so sadistic about it, the way that the average worker in the West has been so relentlessly screwed over the last 40 years of neoliberalism and focusing on America specifically, like the whatever social safety net once existed in America has just been completely decimated over the last several decades and now this idea has been taking hold, like you like you pointed out, like that has total bipartisan consensus that basically it's bad to spend any time you spend anything on kind of social spending or a social safety net, that's bad and it causes inflation and it causes all these problems. And you see that they've completely bought into this. This is something I've been pointing out as well, which is that and, and you know, you mentioned this also, which is that under like under Trump at the beginning of the pandemic, this kind of uh social safety net kind of emerged again in the United States with that child's tax credit, with the expanded unemployment benefits. And regardless, like, again, it's not handing it to Trump or handing it to Republicans, but I think a lot of people are going to remember that for those few months or years, I was actually being able to make ends meet for the first time in a long time. I was able to take a breath and it was under the Joe Biden administration that that all went away. Um, 
And has that actually had an impact in inflation? No, the inflation is still there. And they're still doing things like, oh, we just found we just found an extra seven billion for the Defense Department. That's great. We have another seven billion now. We can we can spend on arms transfers and stuff. And they're putting out the, like these record high uh, defense budgets on top of that. You know, despite ending the war in Afghanistan, which you'd think would cause the defense budget to go down, it's gone up to these record levels. But of course, that doesn't cause inflation, and that doesn't have any of these consequences. It's only when you spend money on food stamps, on uh, welfare on expanded EI benefits or anything that actually, or child tax credit, anything that actually helps average human beings make ends meet, that's bad. That causes these economic consequences. None of this other rampant spending, just handing over billions of dollars to these nakedly corrupt defense contractors who we know have ver- has verified reporting has been done on how completely fraudulent all their accounting is and how horribly they're just completely, uh, uh, you know, screwing people and having access to this unlimited money printer from the United States government. It's really sick the way this, these economic ideas have taken hold in, in both parties. It, it is. And I think, I think it's hard to ignore at this point. It's hard to hide. I mean, I, I, I think we're, we're like, if you're still looking at this economy or either the leadership of both parties as like interested in helping the working class, you're just you're just deliberately looking away from what's really going on, right? I mean, like like I I just we we talked about one aspect of this, right? The let's go back to the depositor thing, right? I mean, 290 billion dollars that could have gone to savers going instead to bank CEOs, bank executives, and bank shareholders, just quietly, just sort of like, you know, thrumming under the economy, just a massive upward transfer of wealth. Now, I think what's interesting about this, uh, especially interesting about this particular issue, is that there is a collective action problem here. And I actually think that a lot of um, corporate schemes that rip people off and that, that politicians allow to rip us off are in part a collective action problem in this sense. The average American only has a a couple thousand bucks, maybe even a couple hundred bucks in a savings account. So the pain in the ass of setting up a bank account, right? You got to get online, you got a password, name, sign all these documents, whatever, right? The difference between 0.4% interest and 5% interest that the bank is making off your money, if you got paid 0.4% interest on, let's say, a thousand bucks versus 5%, on a thousand bucks. I'm always bad with my, my math here. So 0.4% would be four bucks, right? Uh, 5% would be 50 bucks, right? I think that's, that's right, right? Uh, I'm always bad with my zeros. But the point is, is that for the average depositor, the pain in the ass of moving is a high enough threshold that it may not be worth the extra 20, 30, 40 bucks you're going to make, right? But multiplied over millions and millions of depositors, that's an enormous amount of money, right? So I know some people are listening to this and they're, they're thinking, well, look, the, the, you know, this isn't really a problem. Depositors can just move. They can just leave, right? I mean, you're, technically, you're right. And, and I should have mentioned a trillion dollars has moved out of traditional banks over the last, what is it, year and a half. People probably searching for better deposit yield. And good. That's great. That's actually a good thing. But I think the point here is, is that the reason we have to rely on policy is because just because there's a collective action problem doesn't mean it's not a problem, right? Like somebody who could make an extra 30, 40, 50, 60 bucks 
over the course of a year, that still is real money to that person, even if it doesn't, it may not rise to the threshold of I'm going to go through the pain in the ass of finding a new bank. And it's a big pain. It's a big time commitment. I mean, and, and there's a whole separate thing. And, you know, as, as Dave Dayan wrote in the, in the New Republic many years ago, I think about it all the time, you know. We have a very high tax on Americans' free time. We ask Americans to go through so many different loopholes, you know, hoops and paperwork and, and the like. So, like, even changing banks, it's like, oh shit, I don't want to like do that. Just, who's got time for that, right? The point being is that that's where policy is supposed to help us, right? That's why you have a government, right? A government can say, hey, listen, even though the depositor over here is only going to make an extra thirty, forty, fifty bucks. Uh, that's, and they don't want to move because it's only 30, 40, 50 bucks. That's still a problem. And you could put in place policies that protect that person. Millions of those people, right? I mean, you could, you could simply say that the fed could say right now, listen, if you are taking money from us or you're depositing money at the fed at 5%, you, the banks, the minimum you have to pay on traditional savings accounts must be 1%. Right. The, the, the Fed can do that. The Fed can basically do anything. Right. It can do. Right? But policymakers could could put that into law. And by the way, th that's what they're talking about doing over in Britain right now. Right. I mean, the UK, this is a topic uh, in the parliament right now. They're, they're asking the Bank of England, hey, listen, what are you doing to make sure that banks are passing on the interest that they're making at the Bank of England? What are you doing to make sure that some of that is passed on to savers? Our policymakers haven't done that. I mean, the most straightforward thing to do is I, I go back to the idea is to simply let, you know, a public banking option. Right? I mean, this is the thing the bank, banking industry fears the most. There have been proposals out there for years. Bank at the Fed, called the proposal called Fed, Fed Accounts from the Roosevelt Institute. Bob Hockett has the idea to turn the Treasury direct system into an actual bank account. That's an existing system where you can buy savings, savings bonds and treasury bills. Um, postal banking could do something like this. But the banking industry obviously fears this. And, and you had mentioned it, sort of in jest, but let's take it seriously for a second. You know, the idea of, of oh, well, you know, it's socialism. So, well, there's socialism for the banks right now, right? Like the banks are allowed to bank with the state. Why can't I bank with the state, <laughs> right? Like right. you don't get to yell, so, oh, it's socialism. Like Bank of America gets to bank at the government. I want to bank at the government too. Why, like why can only Bank of America bank at the yeah. government? You need this middleman just in the same way in the health insurance industry. Exactly. It's, it's 40 or 50 bucks this year, but mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It's, it's tough for people to conceptualize, but financiers and banks definitely know about it. The compounding interest over oh, 10, sure. 20, 30 years, that's, it just it reaches exponential growth levels. And that's just if you were to move and make that money. So people need to realize that, yeah, maybe a day or two of inconvenience, if in mass, can have a colossal collective impact and counter this concentration of wealth, which is something, before we let you go, we have to get your take on Obama's comments on the you know disruptions in all these industries and the concentration of wealth, that leading to cynicism in people's lives, which then the right and, and hollow populists on the right exploit to pull people over to their side. We're all looking for the guy that did this. <laughs> Can't imagine why. David, have you heard about you? this? Do you hear about this? The sin, this, the cynicism, uh, I mean, this concentration I just, of wealth. <laughs> I mean, I just, like I want, I want, I wonder if he said that from his, uh, from his Martha's Vineyard castle. 
Like I just, I kind of imagined him like looking over the expanse of the ocean from his castle, actually saying this. Um, uh, but I digress. Um, look, the truth of the matter is, is that Obama is correct in the sense that, yes, the concentration of wealth uh, that that happened, uh, not you know, over the course of, what is it, 30, 40, 50 years, certainly has created the conditions for uh, the uh, for the ascent of right wing populism and right wing authoritarianism. I, I, I but but the, the tell here is yeah. Obama's passive. It just got force, concentrated, right? Yeah. Like the quote. Here's the quote: <laughs> the speed with which wealth yep. got concentrated. Well, it just it's like magically got concentrated. It's just like it just got. It just does that sometimes. Like it just does that, right? Like this is Obama's, like his, like Jedi mind trick. It's always been his Jedi. That that, it, it, and it's like super deceptive because it, it, his Jedi mind trick is to diagnose problems in a passive voice that insinuates that he was not a participant in the problem, in the creation of the problem, right? This is a guess. Like wow. If only there had been a president to prevent the constant, the magical concentration of wealth, right? Like, dude, you you were the president, and you weren't just a passive president. Like, you helped concentrate the wealth, like with very specific things that you did. And also worth pointing out as well that he had a once in a generation opportunity in terms of the actual seats in the Senate and Congress to actually make big changes during this moment of unprecedented crisis when there was also a huge mandate from the people that elected him to actually make these big changes and rein in some of the power of the, the banks and these very wealthy individuals. Absolutely. But, but, but I'm going to, I'm going to one up you <laughs> and say this, even if you accept, even if you're like a normie Dem who's been lobotomized by MSNBC and you accept the horseshit argument, that Barack Obama with 59, arguably 60 Senate seats couldn't do anything because of the Republicans. Even if you accept that absolute horse shittery, Obama had unilateral authority to do what he wanted to do, whatever he wanted to do, with the bank bailouts, the specifically TARP, right? That bill was written in a way to give maximum authority, maximum leeway to a president to do anything. Any, and in fact, in fact, it gave him so much leeway that members of Congress who voted for it were pissed off because they thought they were voting to have that for, for, for that money to be used to rescue homeowners. And instead, it was given to the banks in the form of capital injections and the like. The HAMP program, which was supposed to help homeowners, uh, didn't, didn't do that. It was built for the banks to essentially uh, slow but not end foreclosures. I could bore you with all, the, all these details. But the point is, is that Obama could have come into office and said, listen, I can't get, even if I can't get anything through Congress, I'm going to take all of TARP and I'm going to make sure that it's focused on only helping homeowners. That's what I'm going to do with it. He didn't do that. He did the opposite. He used the money to help his Wall Street donors to, to prop them back up. He didn't fire any of them. He didn't even use his power to fire some of these people. The wealth got got concentrated, <laughs> quote unquote. It got concentrated. It's right? concentration season. It, it, yeah, it, yeah it, it got concentrated by such a decision, or or with the help of such a decision and other decisions like it. And then, yes, guess what? People woke up and they were like really pissed off. So when the Tea Party 
made its bullshit arguments. Oh, you know, we're against bailouts and, you know, like those decisions that Obama made helped create those conditions. And the thing that drives me nuts is like, he's diagnosed the problem correctly. He's using a passive voice to pretend he wasn't a participant. And it would be much better if he said, listen, I made some decisions that were bad. I shouldn't have made those decisions. Take responsibility. By the way, one last point on this. The the biggest insult to injury on all of this was towards the 2010 – I feel like I'm the only person in the world who can remember this. Me and Neil Borofsky, who was the TARP uh, Special Inspector General. And we talked about this on our podcast, uh, Meltdown, which is a big podcast series we did about this, which was that towards the 2010 midterm uh, election, which was a massacre for Democrats, the Democrats ended up giving back about $300 billion, rescinding $300 billion of that TARP money. In the name of trying to show that, well, we care about the deficit and we're, you know, it's called being fiscally responsible. responsible, Now, I want you to think about that. Like, (laughs) but but think about this for a second. This is $300 billion that Obama could have done anything with. He could have, he could, he didn't need Congress. He could have just spent it on anything, anything. So he was like, I could help homeowners right before the election. I could just like literally just help every, you know, millions of homeowners. Now, you know what I'm going to do? Instead, I'm going to like give it back. And, ex- and say to voters like, hey, look how fiscally responsible we are. It's like, dude, people are being thrown out of their homes by your Wall Street donors. And, you- and your big move, like your big like, hey, look how awesome I am move before the election was like, oh, you know what? I'm not I'm taking all this money. Well, I'm not giving it to anybody. I'm just giving it. I'm not going to help anybody. With it. I'm just going to give it. I'm going to look at me. I'm fiscally responsible. No <laughs> wonder everyone or lots of voters were like, yeah, you know what, dude, fuck off. <laughs> Right. Like we're just going to vote for these assholes over here. Or just stay home. Who, they're lying to us. And, and and they're. Yeah. But like at least they're 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 not doing this. And they still complain about I, the deficit anyway. Republicans still did it. Exactly. What you forget, that David, cycle, is that when Obama cycle. was that when Obama did that, he, of course, convinced Republicans that he was fiscally responsible and then they would be more convinced to work with them on sensible bipartisan compromises. So why but there's egg on your face? Right. I mean, now, and, and the that. thing is, I know that. <laughs> I know that there are some people who are like, well, you know, if it was such a bad move, why did Obama get reelected in 2012? And my answer to that is because Obama is one of the luckiest politicians who ever lived in this way. He ran for, I mean, and he ran for election in 20, in 2008. His big sort of, his big achievement, political, electoral achievement in my mind was defeating Hillary Clinton in the primary. That was actually really hard. That's not lucky to draw a, a primary challenger as powerful in, inside the Democratic Party. So but now you're the Democratic nominee after eight years of Bush, right? Like if you can't win that election, like, come on, right? Like seriously. And then in the reelection campaign, right? 2012, after all these like pro Wall Street decisions or whatever, he happens to draw a Republican nominee who is like a political cartoon of Wall Street. Right. Like literally the co-creator of Bain Capital. Right. Like how lucky do you have to be that you didn't draw some some Republican who could just pretend to be like a pot? Like, I mean, if he would have drawn John McCain in 2012, he probably would have lost. Right. I mean, I think if he would have drawn Donald Trump, he might have lost. Right. In in 2012. Like he he drew like Gordon Gecko as his (laughs) as his opponent. Right. Like it's like really lucky, really lucky. 
Yeah, and that that clip that Mother Jones got of him at the fundraiser, I think there was just this collective sigh of relief where he's talking about, I can't remember the exact percent, but 47% of people, I think he said, of people feel entitled to food, shelter, and water. When I heard that, it's like, oh, this is over. He's done. Yeah, I mean, like, like how luck, like, like, it's not to, I mean, I'm not taking anything away from the guy, but like, you know, and, and frank, I, frankly, I'm, I, I'm glad that Mitt Romney wasn't president either, but I don't think you can be like Obama won in 2012 uh, because he's such a political genius. Like, no, Obama won in 2012 because the Republicans nominated Gordon Gecko, like morons. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, that's, and I, oh I do God. think generally Obama as well, <laughs> like a very, very radicalizing figure in my lifetime, because I went through that whole process of being inspired by the hope and the optimism and then seeing the result of that and the cynicism. I will say that I, I do think he's like a uniquely charismatic uh, individual that gave, gave great speeches. Is this the disappointing thing was taking that charisma and that natural ability to like bring people together and channeling that in this horrible direction of empowering all the absolute worst people that had created all these crises and going out and committing a bunch of war crimes. You know, that was the really sad thing about that. Well, and the worst, the, the, the most annoying thing is, is that now people have. There's this like revisionist history that's like, well, you know, Obama ran as like a pretty moderate Democrat. It's like, wait a minute. No, no, he didn't. Like, meaning he ran as a mainstream Democrat. But I I remember being uh, at Civic Center Park in Denver with 30 or 40,000 people out there six days before the election. And Obama was giving this speech about how he's going to crack down on Wall Street and take them on. We got to change things. And like, I'm going to take like the guys on Wall Street. I mean, he he. This is a guy, I mean, if you really want to get angry, like just Google like Obama and the word cram down and it'll drive you insane. Like you'll be driven immediately (laughs) insane. Like cram down was a thing that he attacked John McCain over. He was like, we need to change our nation's bankruptcy laws to make sure that um, uh, homeowners on their primary home can get bankruptcy protections to write down the amount that they owe so that they can stay in their home and prevent foreclosures. And he went populist on it and said, and he's correct. You know, uh, uh, right now you can get cram down protections on a, a rich person's second home, third home, investment home, their yacht, their whatever. But you can't right under the law. That's not allowed for people's primary homes. And he criticized John McCain for kind of supporting that two tiered system. And then and so he promised to to make it possible to cram down the, the, the value of a primary home. He gets in office. The Democrats push it and he kills it. He he his Treasury Department killed cram down in a 59 or 60 vote democratic senate like 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 i don't like yeah. the wealth got concentrated like i keep going back to him now so it magically got concentrated like, well i i warned you last night that you as a as a husband as a parent you of all people should not watch Obama's Ugh. Netflix working documentary yeah. series because as i was a few episodes in i, I was thinking i was agitated and i thought oh my god this will give this will give david an aneurysm i mean uh, it, so it, 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 like, it's it gives bad. me the impulse it gives me the impulse for self-harm <laughs> just hearing you talk about watching yeah it, right like like the idea of actually watching it like i, I would need to like i i i, I yeah it turns it. out this uh, silicon valley led uh, gig economy is just grinding people into dust i can't believe this if only someone could do something about this, this is remarkable he he talks about tech companies. He obviously cites the you know the one percent controlling uh, a vast majority of the wealth in this country, and he talks about that being this like a big source of a lot of people's problems. And as I got to that point, I'm thinking, hey, 
if this is something that you are genuinely concerned about, why did you, after sitting out for most of the primary in 2020, go in, swoop in at the last minute just to kneecap the one remaining candidate who had a shot who was talking about specifically this issue? Now, with your 50 million plus Netflix deal, now you want to commodify this issue, give people the appearance that you care about it and are doing something about it. When really he's just flying around the country, talking to people on camera, you know, he, seeing them, hearing them in the traditional democratic fashion, and then just, okay, washes his hands, goes back to Hawaii, goes back to Martha's Vineyard and does what he does. I, I mean, that's such a good point. And I think probably the reason I didn't think about it like that was because I, like, I, it's baked into my presumption that 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 Barack Obama would never have supported Bernie Sanders or you know ever like it's just not yeah. they're just it's not even in within the range of possibility right like but but I and look I think it's it's interesting that the reason you want Barack Obama you would want Barack Obama to say listen I made some I made these mistakes right like I should have gone bigger stimulus i should have should his tarp better etc cetera, etc cetera. the reason you want it is not just so that the guy admits that he sold out but it's so that he this this icon of democratic politics for better or worse that he creates the the argument for or supports the argument that that's not the way to do politics right like the next time there's a crisis that that's not the way to handle it and and the thing is is that Luckily for millions of people, somewhere in the Biden White House, that a piece of that lesson was learned for a minute, right? Like the American Rescue Plan was probably the best piece of legislation that has ever passed in my entire lifetime, right? Like, like I just, it just isn't like they actually spent money on the working class. Like they actually did it. Like it was incredible. Like it was kind of hard to believe, right? Because somehow they they figured it out for a minute. They're like, wait a minute, let's see. It's like shit's bad. We should like help people. Like maybe that'll be good politics. And then it was like we did it. And then it was like Joe Biden's numbers skyrocket. Was like, wow, this worked. And then of course the machine went to work and was like, oh, that, that created inflation. And then you know they crumbled immediately, right? They was like, oh, we got to rescind. We got to rescind everything that we've done that's good, right? Like so they they but like for a minute it was like whoa, like they. they they remembered what FDR did. Like, this is cool, right? I mean, I'm not saying Joe Biden's FDR, but like a little version of like, you know, and like the reason you want Obama to not just say, you know, wealth got concentrated and, you know, sort of diagnose what happened, and but actually go further and say, I made these specific decisions that helped do that. And that was bad is because the next time there's a crisis, you want there to be the former president continued icon of the democratic party being like we have to do something different and like the next time there's a crisis would the democratic party do something different than what obama did in those like i don't i'm not i don't have a lot of confidence well i mean that that to me was the central question of the biden administration you know i don't think biden really had changed his politics or changed his viewpoint but that was what I was wondering whether they had learned those basic lessons from the Obama era when they listened to the the Larry Summers of the world and then ended up not only screwing over and ruining millions of people's lives, but also getting absolutely demolished politically as well. So did they learn that basic lesson? And for a while, I guess I was kind of interested whether there, we were going to see an answer to that uh, in the affirmative. And I think that's been the result of the last couple of years is a resounding, no, they've not. It's the same, it's the same bullshit triangulation that they always try to do. It's had the same result. 
And, you know, that's, they don't, I don't know if they're ever going to learn anything at this point. It almost I mean, seems look, like they just agree look, with these policies look, and they f- want fiscal, to implement these policies. Fiscal policy wise, I do think Biden has been better than Obama, mostly because of the American Rescue Plan. Also, some of the spending in the Inflation Reduction Act, although, you know, the giveaways to the fossil fuel industry is embarrassing and beyond embarrassing. It's just, it's a, it's, it's a moral outrage uh, during the climate crisis. So I do think he's a little better overall in, in this, but I also think that the crisis, like, like, like the fact that it's only a little better after shit has gotten so much worse uh, I, although it was it was it was bad in the financial crisis, but but it's almost like we normalized the financial crisis, right? It's like it's just, the financial crisis is just like now it's like that that's that's what American life is. I mean, the banks are back, but like people getting ripped off on housing, people getting ripped off on you know we talk about interest rates, people getting ripped off you know writ large by the financial sector. That's just now like that's not a crisis. That's just like life, right? <laughs> like that's just the norm, and so things have gotten worse in that sense in the in the sense that it's not anomalous it's just the norm and like things that, like policy wise it's only gotten like a smidgen better for like a minute you know like yeah. that's by the way you want to know what the democracy crisis is that's the democracy crisis right like it's not it's yes it's it's one six and people storming the capitol and trying to deny elections but the democracy crisis is a government that refuses to uh, deliver what it can and knows how to deliver for most people refuses to deliver that because it is owned by a small handful of very powerful corporations and billionaires. That's the democracy crisis. Good place to leave it. I think we're. I think we covered a lot of ground there. Yeah. yeah. Thank you guys David, for having me on. Thanks for starting yes. out with the, a discussion of the Nuggets. Uh, the Nuggets, <laughs> of course. By the way, I should just mention last thing I'll say on the Nuggets. I mean. I needed it. Like I really, <laughs> yeah. it was like end of my wife's legislative session. I was exhausted. Like, you know, I was like burned out on politics. Like I needed something. And like the universe provided me, you know, Nikola Jokic, <laughs> Jamal Murray, Aaron Gordon, Bruce Brown, Uncle Jeff, uh, 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 you know, all the rest of the players. I'm I'm probably missing. Um, who am I missing? I'm missing somebody. Uh, Michael Porter Jr. Even though he was not very good in the finals, but Michael Porter makes some big shots in the clinching game. Though he was forgettable, (laughs) he did make some big shots. Yes, he did. Although I was mad at him, (laughs) Uh, it was like, dude, you're gonna lose. You're gonna you're gonna you're gonna blow this. But yeah, yeah. Like, thank you to whatever universe you know higher power is out there for giving me the nuggets for like a solid couple. Sirota needed a W, (laughs) and he got it. Where can people follow you and support the lever? Follow us at levernews.com. You can also find me at uh, on Twitter at, at my name, at David Sirota. Uh, I'm pretty easy to find, um, uh, although I'm try- I'm, I'd really like to at some point not ever look at social media again. So you can find me at levernews.com, first and foremost. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining Thanks, us. David. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Hey, everyone. Thank you for listening to The Insurgents. If you want to subscribe to the show, you can find us on iTunes or Spotify or at Substack, theinsurgents.substack.com. You'll get the latest episodes delivered straight to your inbox as well as our newsletter. On Twitter, we are at InsurgentsPod. Tweet at us, harass Ken in our replies, and then send us your hate mail to theinsurgentspod at gmail.com. Thank you once again for listening. <laughs>